0: I uh, went to the purchasing department and I asked how many foam cups uh, did we purchase last year? And they gave me the number and I sat down for about 10 minutes and calculated how high that stack of coffee cups would be. And it, and it went uh, twice the height of the empire state building. Okay. Of the amount of cups that, that a that a medium sized or small size company had purchased and used simply for its employees to go get coffee in the morning. I think it's important, you know, employees should have coffee in the morning. But what we did is we took a more draconian approach and we just simply said, you know what? Almost every one of our cups are being used by employees that, that come in day in day out. We just simply said, you know what? We're not going to buy foam cups anymore. Uh, and we said, please bring in your cups. We, we offered some people, some, some company logoed cups. And next thing you know, we didn't spend a dime on styrofoam cups the next year. And we saved, Hold that landfill space.
1: One,
0: two, three, four. Welcome
1: to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, how Russ DeLozier spearheaded the largest nationwide carpet recycling program, led one flooring company to zero waste to landfill, and led sustainability measures in multiple Fortune 500 companies. Tell me, what are you standing on right now? And if you aren't standing, what are your feet on? If I could guess, I would say that most people are standing on some kind of flooring, whether that is carpet, hardwood, or tile. Now, what if I told you the majority of what you stand on is produced in one small Georgia city? Dalton, Georgia has long been referred to as the carpet capital of the world and is becoming a major player in the artificial turf manufacturing market. Companies like Shaw Industries, Mohawk Industries, and Engineered Floors All originated in the Dalton area, and the three companies are leaders in worldwide flooring. Dalton, Georgia just so happens to be where I grew up and where I've spent the majority of my life. So what does flooring have to do with sustainability? The answer is a lot. For a long time, the consensus was that carpet could not be recycled and that it had to belong in the landfill. Over time, as more research and money were allocated to the issue the solution became clearer to see. By breaking down the different components of post-consumer carpet, reclamation was possible. It was important that a solution was found in the carpet industry because replacement carpet jobs were beginning to add up. Carpet has a finite life, and at some point in its cycle, it is replaced by newer carpet or a different form of flooring. New developments now allow carpet to be broken down into original elements, and reused in different applications carpet recycling does not mean the components will go back into producing more carpet it could be to produce a kid's plastic toy or even a part in your car our guest on the green hour today is russ delosier a man who has made a career out of sustainability specifically in the flooring industry russ graduated from georgia tech with a degree in chemical engineering and a minor in polymer science He used this degree in his first occupation with the Dow Chemical Company. While at Dow, Russ specialized in startups of plastic and styrofoam plants. After a long stint, Russ transitioned to Shaw Industries, which at the time was the largest flooring company in the world. He took on the position of Director of Materials Reclamation, which began his experience in recycling, stewardship, and sustainability. Russ was responsible for all of Shaw's post-consumer carpet reclamation, and he established the largest nationwide carpet recycling program and was directly involved in the reverse logistics of over a half billion pounds of post-consumer carpet. Until 2020, Russ was the longest-serving mill representative to the Carpet America Recovery Effort Board, where he was actively involved in the 2012 MOU negotiation process as well as the implementation of California's Trial Carpet EPR legislation, AB 2398. He's the past recipient of CARES Carpet Recycler of the Year Award and one of only two two two-time recipients of CRI's Distinguished Memorial Award who show exemplary service to the carpet and rug industry. After his time at Shaw Industries, Russ joined the J&J Flooring Group in the role of Director of Sustainability. In that capacity, Russ helped oversee all aspects of J&J's corporate sustainability, including environmental affairs, reclamation, product stewardship, recycling and recycled content, waste elimination, product transparency, landfill avoidance, energy conservation, renewable energy, and environmental certifications. Russ helped lead J&J to become the first in the industry to achieve third-party certification, for zero waste to landfill. J&J Flooring Group was later purchased by Engineered Floors, where Russ continued in a similar role. Recently, Russ left Engineered Floors to open up his own consulting firm, Regenerate Environmental and Sustainable Consulting. He is using all of his past experiences and expertise to impact a variety of industries. Russ DeLoja became a major contributor in carpet recycling over his career, and has paved a way for the next generation of stewards.
0: I guess it comes, it starts back in the college days, uh, Preston. It goes back, you know, I wanted to become a, a chemical engineer, and uh, I just enjoyed the core elements of chemical engineering, and was fortunate enough to start my career with, with Dow Chemical out of Louisiana. Dow was, at the time, probably the second or third largest chemical company in the world, it had a global presence, and I got to tell you, my first uh, fifteen years there with Dow in my career were was a tremendous asset to me. I became a, a a better engineer, understood, you know, how you got things done within the chemical industry, and had the the privilege of you know installing projects, uh, building entire new plants, uh, you know, operating plants, managing organizations and so very thankful for that and and that got me involved in, in sustainability just simply from the stewardship standpoint then I, I had the tremendous honor to transition from chemical to the soft floor covering industry specifically going to shaw industries uh at the time the largest uh, carpet manufacturer in the world I, I believe it still is the largest you know true carpet manufacturer in the world and um Anyway, it uh, it immediately uh, gave me an opportunity within sustainability, and, and that's kind of how, how my career has progressed from the chemical industry on into the flooring industry and in, into the sustainability world.
1: Right. So so when you were with Dow Chemical, what, what type of things were you working on? So, I mean, from what I see, you were working in, in plastics and styrofoam, um, and, then, and then from there, you, you go into the soft flooring industry. So I'm guessing that is That's a big change. Um, And I don't have experience with it, but I'm guessing
0: that 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 is a big change. It it was a big change. Uh, I suppose I I would not have occurred had I not been transferred from Texas to Georgia. Uh, At the time, chemical industries as a whole don't have as big a presence in in uh, a state like a Georgia. It has a bigger presence in states like Texas or or New Jersey or Louisiana. And so by, by transferring here to operate a a smaller one of their plants, the styrofoam plant, like you mentioned, uh, it, it gave me the opportunity to be in the area when the transition occurred. Yes, it was a big change. Uh, those two industries operate differently. Uh, they, just because they're different, different maturity to them. You know, one's been around for literally hundreds of years versus ones being around for many, many decades. And, um, but nonetheless, it was, a, it was a, a challenge that I was very glad to take. And I was able to use my previous experience with Dow. And you asked the question, what did I do? Well, It was anything from originally R&D to come up with and design processes to then I would uh, oper- serve as a, uh, as a uh, plant engineer where I would manage a process, say, to eventually I became a project engineer where I would install capital projects. And ultimately then would become a, uh, uh, a, a startup you know, leader where I would, you know, uh, basically build a brand new plant and then finally uh, work towards managing that plant. So that's it's, it's it's a career does happen when you when you add several decades to it. It kind of kind of happens. <laughs> right. Right. So so styrofoam, I mean, you mentioned that, that
1: your transition to the styrofoam plant and kind of managing and running that. Styrofoam was an interesting beast um, in in the materials world. Yes, and I, I didn't I didn't really know much about Styrofoam until COVID hit, um, and, and I was I was in college, and everything that we're using is Styrofoam. And Styrofoam is very 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 difficult to break down and recycle. So I, I would guess I would ask you when you're at Dow and you're running the Styrofoam plant, did you or, or did your team instill some type of recycling or reusability? Service internally through Dow. Uh,
0: that's a that's a great question, and, you, and you're right. Let me let me kind of back up to the fundamentals. The actual trade name Styrofoam uh, is officially a, a trade name that's owned by the Dow Chemical Company, and it it represents really the blue board or the blue insulation. And you you tend to see it as you're driving down the road on new construction. Maybe a house or a building has this blue. Material covering the outside to help it be more thermally efficient, and so that's the officially styrofoam. Uh, Dow did a good job back, I guess, in the '60s, trademarking that that name. And we we as a as citizens of the United States became used to just anything that was foam-like. You know, a styrofoam cup, a styrofoam plate uh, would get that name. But officially, those those cups and those plates really should be called expanded polystyrene because they're not the trade name styrofoam. But, but let me talk briefly about the blueboard styrofoam, and then I'll jump into your question, which is tell me about the, the, the cups and the, and the plates and those type of things. So, yes, the answer is you've got to learn, as a manufacturer, you've got to learn to recycle. That's one of the first things you've got to do. Because you when you're making a product, you produce a little bit of waste. That's called post-industrial waste or basically waste that occurs during the industrial process. And if a company doesn't learn how to recycle that, it's it's going to be very difficult economically to operate the process. So Dow had very good uh, recycling abilities, and and that was one of the things I focused on a lot in my new role, is to improve our efficiency of recycling. And it does it simply by by grinding it up and then uh, melting it and then squeezing it into kind of a pellet and then re-extruding that pellet again. And uh, so it does take a lot of equipment. It's, it's fairly late, cost intensive. It's not terribly labor intensive, but it is very uh, cost intensive. So that's how, quote, styrofoam occurs. Now, then you ask the question about the styrofoam cups and, you know, basically expanded polystyrene. And you're right. That has been our a, a big sore spot for our country. It's difficult. Uh, and uh, there are technologies out there aimed at trying to recover it. But what happens is it's a logistical inefficiency because it takes up so much volume. And as a result, a lot of, there are some municipalities that are beginning to, uh, uh, you know, ban or or somehow limit the use of foam cups. And I do think uh, folks like uh, there's Dixie cup and, and several other cup manufacturers and plate manufacturers who are engaged in that process. So somebody in sustainability in that company is working hard to improve recycling for expanded polystyrene foam. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had touched
1: on, you know, during COVID in college, um, you know, we're, we're asked to come in the cafeteria and, and pick up our food and our drinks and in these styrofoam to go boxes and, and, and to go cups. And, um, I was actually talking to someone the other day. It was a, it was a weird time for me because I was actually on crutches in a, in a walking boot because I'd broken my foot, um, playing, playing football. And I just remember carrying this styrofoam plate and, and and cup and trying to crutch my way around campus <laughs> um, but w- one thing that I really um enjoyed that the university did was they identified the problem and then they found the solution of transitioning to biodegradable materials in mm-hmm. in cups and in plates and you know all the waste um there there was still some waste, but ultimately you know they took the pledge of okay. This is a lot, a lot of, lot of waste that we, that we have right now through styrofoam. Yes. And they figured out a new, a new way, um, to, to present that to students.
0: Well, that's that they should be doing that And, and sustainability. If I could say one thing to your audience is it's going to take on all of the above solutions. You talked about biodegradable. Uh, that's certainly one option. And my recommendation is if somebody's standing where they are right now with a certain kind of a level of efficiencies, they ought to do anything they can to be more efficient. If that biodegradable is the first step, it's very possible they might be able to even improve from that point on, but just get moving, move, move in the direction of greater efficiency. And if you do that, you become more sustainable. Uh, That's officially, uh, in my opinion, another word for sustainability is just increased efficiency. Uh, So, But real quick, uh, one thing I did uh, when transitioning from one of my employers to another, when I went from Shaw to to Engineer Floors, I uh, went to the purchasing department and I asked, how many foam cups uh, did we purchase last year? And they gave me the number. And I sat down for about 10 minutes and calculated how high that stack of coffee cups would be. And it it went uh, twice the height of the Empire State Building. Okay of the amount of cups that that a that a medium sized or small sized company had purchased and used simply for its employees to go get coffee in the morning. I think it's important, you know, employees should have coffee in the morning. But what we did is we took a more draconian approach and we just simply said, "You know what? Almost every one of our cups are being used by employees that that come in day in day out." We just simply said, "You know what? We're not going to buy phone cups anymore." Uh, and we said, please bring in your cups. We, we offered some people, some, some company logoed cups. And next thing you know, we didn't spend a dime on styrofoam cups the next year. And we saved all that landfill space. Now that's, that's one way to do it. I think we're, we're you know, like you say, biodegradable is another way. But point is just move in some direction forward is is the key. I think that, um, I, I've had,
1: um, Rodney Davenport on here, He's he runs an um, injection molding um, business, CH3 Solutions, for the recreational group. And, I mean, he was talking about, I, I forget what company it was, but they were basically sending um, everybody that purchased their product, they were sending them this plastic bag or this plastic plate. And, and, the, and the problem was, you know, if you're getting something at your house, people probably have a plate. So yeah. So why are you including this plastic plate? With your your product and um, th- this company, I mean, and it's just it's escaping me. But what they did was they just took the plastic plate out, um, and they ended up saving I I, I forget how many millions of, of of pounds of waste just
0: by doing that one simple thing. So it's it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, correct and. And all you got to do is just think a little different. You ask the question, "Why are we doing this?" You need to ask, you know, your your uh, listeners here need to be asking their, their themselves the question, "Why are we doing it?" And if you can't come up with a good answer, be willing to change or or change, you know, stop doing it. And um, but that's the where it starts. So you've got to you got to strive towards efficiency. And the other thing I would say is this: is sustainability is about doing the same with. Uh, basically, the the doing more, if you will, with the same or less. So it, that's that efficiency element to sustainability. It's it's constant drive towards efficiency.
1: Right, right. I mean, to me, you look at sustainability, and it's all problem solving.
0: It, it's all. I mean, how, sure. how can how
1: can we do do more with less? How yeah. can we save here? How can we move this to this? How can we you know create a product from existing waste? Um, and it really it really lights up my mind because. And I've said this on past episodes, people just don't realize the value in waste and people don't don't realize, like you're saying, the efficiency that
0: that that you gain
1: through sustainability. Sure.
0: I, I want to uh, challenge your listeners to consider this. And one of the things that helped me the most as I was thinking about waste is every just about every person has a has a garbage or a trash can in their kitchen or, or a waste basket beside their desk and they're throwing things away. We need to really stop calling them waste baskets and calling them wasted resources baskets because that's what they are. They're wasted. As we toss some paper in there or we toss, you know, a piece of plastic or or cardboard or whatever in that waste basket. It really isn't a waste basket. It's a wasted resource. So you need to see anything that we've used. Uh, I hate to draw a conclusion from here, but I'll be honest with you, a a company like SpaceX. Okay. Uh, obviously you say, well, what do they have to do with sustainability? They have an awful lot to do with sustainability and that there's nothing more sustainable than reusing rockets multiple, multiple times. I I mean, I don't have to do a single calculation to tell you that their greenhouse gas emissions at SpaceX are way less than those at ULA, the United Launch Alliance. There's no you, you can't help but be more efficient to reuse things. And, uh, I recognize they don't put themselves out as a sustainability company. They put themselves out as a space and rocket company, but they're being more efficient or more sustainable because they're more efficient space. I mean, Elon
1: Musk, you can look at all the things that he's doing and it's, it's really cool just to see his hand in almost every industry at this point. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot, a lot to do with sustainability, obviously, like you're saying with SpaceX, with, with Tesla, um, with, I would even say, with the boring company, what he's doing by creating tunnels underneath metropolitan cities and and, and trying to eliminate and 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 reduce traffic and and just all of these yeah. things are just really cool. Yeah. So uh, I kind of want to transition now, um, Russ, into into this element of, of of flooring. Okay. And your experience in the flooring industry. I mean, you you worked with Shaw Industries, which again is Fortune 500 company. You worked with. J and J Flooring, which um, was was acquired by Engineered Floors yes. four to five years ago. So um, the floor industry. I grew up in Dalton, Georgia. That's where that's where we ultimately met. And um, the flooring industry in Dalton, Georgia, it's, it's the carpet capital of the world. So I mean, yes. you have you have turf manufacturers, artificial turf manufacturers, you have carpet manufacturers, you have laminate manufacturers, you have hardwood manufacturers, ceramic tile manufacturers. Everything you can think of is in Dalton, Georgia, and it's just. It's an interesting place because I mean you drive through Dalton and you just don't really realize all of the industry that's happening um, in in our city. Talking about the flooring industry and obviously I, I know I know the things that you did in the past at these companies, um, but could you give us a brief on the carpet industry and kind of how it transitioned into carpet recycling?
0: Sure, you know that's a good that's a good question. You, you know you're right. Flooring is an important element in everybody's life. You know, it's, if you think about it, it's the very first thing we do when we step out of bed is we put our feet on the floor. And so whether that's a rug or whether that's carpet or whether that's laminate or hard surface or or LVT, it's a flooring product. And, and the thing about it is most flooring products last for multiple years. The average life of carpet, uh, usually speaking, or, or typically speaking is roughly 12 years. Now, there's some carpet that lasts maybe three or four, maybe in, a, in an apartment where a lot of people are moving in and out. And there's some that last for 20 or 30 years, depending on, on its use level. Carpet generally styles out before it wears out. But every product uh, that's being used is going to have some wear, whether it's your car tires or or whatever, whether the roof on your house. And so uh, in the case of carpet, it's obviously made from a significant amount of hydrocarbons on top. Roughly 70% of carpet is some kind of hydrocarbon, whether it's the polymer plastic on top or the latex gluing it together uh, or or some other material in the middle that's kind of binding it all uh, together. It, it's a 70% or so hydrocarbon. And so as a result, at the end of its useful life, let's say 12 or 15 years, um, you know, the industry said to itself, hey, there's a wasted resource. Let's figure out how to recycle it and recover it. And it's really been a, a process that's uh, Preston's probably taken 20 plus years for the industry to, to look at it. There's been a few leaders in it uh, starting early. I would say uh, a company by the name of Interface uh, started uh, looking at recycling. Uh, and to this, to this day, I think they would recycle, uh, It's give or take, last time I looked at the numbers was about 50% of their new carpet is made from old carpet. So they have uh been a, a leader in recycling. But there's been others as well too, you know, Shaw, Mohawk, uh and and, and the Tarquette, to name just a few. My background.
1: I, I worked in, in, in a mid-sized company running a small golf company uh, that that used artificial turf to make putting greens. And I done a lot of research on artificial turf recycling. And you know right now the, the technology isn't there quite yet for this to actually um, to happen, like it needs to. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was funny when I'm talking with people about artificial turf recycling and and just where the industry's headed and and, and where people think it's going to go. Um, they said, you know, early on, nobody thought that carpet could be recycled, and it was mm-hmm. a question a long time of, you know, can we even recycle carpet? I mean, w- what do we do with all this waste? And it seems like now it's a similar type. Um, story with artificial turf, where early on people were saying, oh, there's no way we can recycle it. We can't break it down um, with all of these different elements. But now we're starting to see companies that are coming in and really showing that, you know, we think that we can recycle um, artificial fields. The question I would ask you, Russ, is what is the process of carpet recycling and how does carpet go from not being used to to recycle to to having a new use
0: well that's I mean that's a uh, an important question so let's just use an example let's say there's carpet um, I don't know let's just pick carpet in Orlando Florida all right and so somebody changes their carpet well something that a couple things has to happen number one an installer has had to go out there and and take up the old carpet and put down the new so that installer now has in their van or in their truck a, an old roll of carpet, of used carpet. It's called post-consumer carpet or PCC. That's the, the terms that the industry uses. At that point, uh, nobody really knows what kind of polymer the fiber is. It, it could be either polyester made with polyester fiber. It could be made with nylon 6. It could be made with nylon 6. six. It could be made with Polypropylene. Those are the four major ones that represent probably about 98% of all the carpet that there is some uh, kind of high end carpet made from wool. But most, most carpets are going to be a synthetic polymer. So the very first thing that has to happen is that installer has to drop carpet off at a, at a recycle center where they can identify the kind of carpet. Because the very first thing has to be sorting the carpet. So uh, there's actually an industry term called CSEs, or collect- Collectors, Sorters, Entrepreneurs. And these are individuals, you know, for instance, say in Orlando, who are collecting and sorting carpet. And they're usually putting it together in a big bale. Uh, so they bale it up with some kind of baler. And now, now the carpet roll is mixed with you know a dozen other carpet rolls, and it weighs 1,000 pounds. At that point, it's shipped to a processor. Uh, a, a lot of processors exist in the southeast. There's some that exist, uh, you know, in Tennessee. There's a couple that exist in, um, let's see, there's a, I guess, a, a lot in California. Several in California, one or two in Texas, that kind of thing. So you'd send to a processor, and the very first thing they would do, uh, Preston, is shred it up, and and now they've turned it not into a roll of carpet, but into a small piece. And then there's several steps of processing where they're trying to separate the backing from the fiber. And so they're trying their best to get rid of that other 30% that we spoke of. They want to try to get the the 70% that's hydrocarbon and get rid of the 30%. And there's been an awful lot of technology to get that improved over the last 20 years to the point where, uh, you know, with a fair amount of effort, they can get that down to where it might only hold, you know, 5% of that, of the inorganic, but notice, you know, so you got 5% inorganic and you have 95% polymer type stuff. It's still contaminated. So carpet recycling isn't the purest uh, um, product, but it's still a whole lot better than than a roll of carpet. So that's how that's done. It's got to first be collected, sorted, then size reduced, and then further processed to get rid of the inorganics
1: you mentioned the technology has improved over time. I was at, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this outfit in Dalton, um, RC plastics. Um, what they do is they'll, they'll take in rejected parts and find new uses for them, sell them off, you know, grind them up, just, yeah. just find new uses for them. And I, I was in there with one of their leaders, just walking around the, um, walking around their facility. And he showed me this uh, piece of technology. It's almost like a gun. And he said, look at this. So, so he he pointed it at a fiber and he said, "This this gun and I wish I knew the name of it. This gun will tell you exactly what fiber this is." So he points it at it, and right away it locates it. And I was like, "That's just so cool!" Because I, I in in the past I feel like people it was just very difficult to know what fibers were in use.
0: No, that what you probably saw was either the phaser or the microphaser. Is what yes. you saw. It's a was a Thermo Fisher device. Uh, Thermo Fisher has actually stopped producing that product. And the industry has found a couple other manufacturers who are making identification guns. And yeah, so that identification gun's essential. Just so you know, that that phaser that you saw, the actual smarts of that were used about 10 years ago to land on the moon and tell us back here how much moisture, how much water exists on the moon. So it's, it's a pretty neat technology, yeah. I don't
1: know that, that, that's really cool just to think about. You, you transition something that you're using, landing on the moon to. <laughs> let's see what, what fibers um, can Correct. be recycled, and what can we group together and, and grind up together and, and ultimately sell together? It's just yeah. I don't know. Humans, humans just find new ways for things, and that's, that's right. really cool.:
0: Well, science um, is, is Greek for knowledge, and so we as humans, uh, with time, increase our knowledge and uh with with the application of science and then and then engineering applies that just to, to a solution and it's going to take all of that it's going to take R and D. it's going to take scientists it's going to take chemists to figure out these processes and the, and the good news is five years from now the processes are going to be considerably better than they are today because i know the ones today are are, are considerably better than they were five years ago so we're just going to keep getting better and better but it's going to take focused effort uh and I hope your listeners understand the importance of sustainability. It doesn't just happen because I got this warm feeling of I feel better if I recycle. It, it actually happens when you, you're determined to be more efficient in what you do. And, yeah, w- with technology, again, um, you're
1: talking about in the next five years. One company that I saw, um, and, and they're doing some really, really cool things out of Texas. You know, for the longest time, you have recycling plants that, you know, you have to manually sort. Mm-hmm. all of these materials that come in and sort, 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 sort there, there's human error. There is, it's just, it's just a waste. I feel like, and it's just, you talk about efficiency. It's so inefficient. This company is utilizing artificial intelligence yes. to now. Well, let's throw the humans out of the game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's use artificial intelligence to, you know, create this robotic system that you push the materials through it and it'll tell you exactly what they are and, and what they're made of. So, just like you're saying in the next five years, that's something that's happening now um, with artificial intelligence and where that's going. uh, There's no telling, especially in the sustainability industry, what's, what's going to be.
0: No, that's, that's true. Uh, uh, You know, I've just recently, again, begun looking into artificial intelligence, the core, the the chat GPT that's now available through Bing, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going to change. It's going to change a lot of industries in the next five and 10 years. Um, they've had uh, automatic sorting systems uh, for a while because the key is being able to identify it. And what was happening is they were primarily limited by simply computer power to do it quick enough. So what they would commonly do in these MRFs or these sorting centers is they would have eight or 10 people. Well, eight or 10 people have eight or 10 uh, you know brains on their head, and, and God has made a, an amazing brain. That can operate very quickly. I agree. We can have some human error from time to time, but when you put the, the the computer power of eight people up there, they can pick and sort pretty quickly. What they were having trouble with is they were having trouble with computers keeping up with that processing speed, and they've since learned how to, to how to deal with that, and, and they've uh, overcome that issue. And so, you are right. There is automation there. That, that does make things cleaner, more efficient, uh, and, and I think will help the industry. The good news is there's still somebody who has to install that piece of equipment. There's somebody else who has to monitor it, make sure it's programmed correctly. There's others who have to, uh, you know, make sure material comes into that murph effectively and leaves that MRF. So the good news is we're always going to need people, but we just might need them in higher uh, level capacities, you know, doing more, more uh, detailed stuff, if you will.
1: Right, right. I was actually talking to a friend the other day about ChatGPT and OpenAI and about, like like you're saying, all the jobs that, that are saying are going to be slashed and just filled with with um, this this ChatGPT technology. And, you know, I, I thought back to, you know, prior the computer age, and it was probably very similar to where you had this technology coming and, and they're saying, oh, computers are going to they're going to um, slash all of these jobs and it's just going to take over and you don't need, you don't need these skills anymore. The computer can take that over. And what happened was with the computer industry coming in, now you had all these other jobs open up because people needed to learn how to fun, um, how to use the computer and, and how to utilize all of all of the internal resources. So the same thing is going to happen with, with chat GPT. I mean, I think, yes, ultimately you're going to have some jobs that get cut. Um, but the, the, the people that stay ahead of technology, we'll stay ahead of the curve um, sure. and the, the the jobs will come. I just think that it, there's always a transition in technology and society. And and we're kind of going through that right now. We,
0: we are my, uh, when I first registered for college decades ago, uh, I registered with punch cards. Uh, and then I had the privilege of the next year to register with a 300 kilobyte BOD modem dial up modem. So yes, I've I've had the privilege of seeing technology uh, advance considerably now that we're into gigabyte uh, internet connections. <laughs> <laughs> right. So 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 going back to to the flooring industry and 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 back
1: on the topic of carpet recycling. So at your previous companies, working with Shaw Industries, J and J Flooring Group, and with um, Engineered Floors, did these companies did they have the capacity to recycle in house, um, or were they having to to outsource this to other organizations.
0: Yes. Uh, that's a that's also a very good question. I would say it takes a, it takes both. Okay, the answer is um, you know each of them would have different levels of in house capability. Um, a lot of it just depended upon what kind of process, what kind of product, etc. But all of them had some level of internal capability, but they also they all relied on uh, external recycler that, that also focuses on that. And then ultimately they would also then rely upon, you know, some kind of uh, possibly an external processor who would take that recycled good and circle it back. So it, my, my, I guess my point is there's not, there's not going to ever be one size fits all. I, I don't believe there is a company nor maybe even, I, I might go as far as to tell you, Preston, there might not should ever be a company that does every, every, everything in house. Um, and it's simply this, is, is flooring companies ought to be really, really good at making flooring. You know, they might not be as good with uh, certain elements of recycling or whatever, but they ought to be resourceful enough to know who is and to go out there, tap into them and create a partnership. So I, my goal is to uh, to make sure they see, just like uh, a manufacturer, there's a supplier partnership for the raw materials to make the original good, okay? So like carpet. You know, it takes nylon and polypropylene and calcium carbonate and SBR latex. So those uh, carpet companies need to have supplier partnerships with the people who provide those raw materials. They need to also have supplier partnerships with the people who do recycling downstream. And if you do those two things together, you know, it, slowly but surely you make progress over time. And right. Right. the good news is there's room for win for everybody. You know, not not one company wins, but but kind of everybody wins along the way.
1: So so in your experience, again, with with these three large companies and flooring, um, ultimately, when you were recycling carpet, was it in-house errors? I mean, were were your manufacturing lines just creating faulty product that you had to take out? And, okay, we got to find a new use for this. Let's recycle this. Or was it more of, okay, our customers were going to replace their, their existing flooring, and now we need to take the old flooring and recycle that? I, I, I guess what I would ask is, what what was what was more what was the higher percentage was it was it your, your manufacturing lines making mistakes or was it you know this this replacement flooring Again,
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah that's a very important question and what i would say is this is, is officially it should always be the replacement product at the end of a useful life because if companies are manufacturing it they should always strive for efficiencies to produce very little waste to start with now having said that you know, to say they can do no waste is is probably, at least currently, unrealistic. But but as little as as possible waste. And so, but it but that waste depends upon what kind of product you're making. So a common product in the flooring industry, in commercial, is tile. Well, what happens is tile when it is made into a let's call it two foot by two foot uh, product, you know, that's then installed in a bank, say in in Denver if you will, but it's, it leaves, it leaves the flooring industry here in a box two foot by two foot. All the waste of that tile was generated back in manufacturing, because think about the edges there, there used to be and They're actually called either, you know, window waste, or that's kind of the, the area of the waste outside of that tile. Or if you're making a broad loom product, it's called ed- edge trim or edge waste. And so, yes, there is that waste. Um, that generally is a fairly no, low number. It just has to be for efficiency's sake. On the other hand, the vast majority of the product leaves here. So, for instance, if, if I are talking residential carpet, if, I, if I'm going to install carpet in my house, I will likely purchase anywhere from 8 uh, to 10% extra carpet because by the time I cut it into my house and cut into the closets and cut into the, the walkways and the hallways, I'm left over with some scrap at the job site. However, if I install that, uh, a modular tile in that same house, I might only buy 1% or 2% waste because it's, it becomes so efficient to install it that I have very little waste during the installation process. So, but at the end of the day, all of that product that I put on the floor might be down there for 5 years or 10 years or, or 12 years, as we've talked about before, and, and ultimately is going to be needed to be recycled. So there's way more weight out there uh, in the post-consumer world than there is in the post-industrial.
1: So in sustainability, we talk a lot about closing the loop. How can we close the loop with sustainability? You know, taking, let's say, recycling. Let's let's recycle a product. So now that you give it an, another use, but let's not recycle it just for a single use. Let's recycle it so it closes the loop and it continues and continues and continues. And continues. So w- with carpet, this carpet recycling is, does it close the loop or does it just extend the life of, you know, the, the internal products of the carpet? Sure.
0: Yeah, another term that's commonly thrown out today in that area of closing the loop would be like the circular economy. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and it's kind of asking and answering try the same question. And again, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, Preston, that it's uh, it's an all of the above solution. There's going to be product that will not be able to effectively and efficiently close the loop or be circular in our present knowledge and skills, in, you know, with technology we have today. And yet, there's others that can be. So the idea is it's kind of it's kind of take both. In general, uh, take flooring for instance. It's it's a. I think it's a disservice to the flooring industry to say let's put flooring back per se into flooring. Right now, the majority of flooring does go back into plastic parts. So, uh, for instance, uh, uh, at one time, and I don't know if this number is current. This is a few years old, but it's, it's approximate, right? Pro- approximately right. And that is that every Ford F one hundred and fifty truck has uh, three square yards of carpet underneath the hood. Because it's been recycled. So you might say, well, sell more F-150s, okay? Uh, but <laughs> the other is just realize you're, you're putting it back into plastic parts. So it doesn't have to be carpet to carpet as long as it's closing the loop and overall beneficial. Uh, I do think with time, we need to constantly be working on our R&D to, to make the recycling of any one product easier the next time. But I've, I've never recycled an aluminum can. I've never recycled a polyester bottle and felt like that bottle had to go back into another bottle i'm perfectly fine with it going into a kid's toy or carpet or or anything else and i'm perfectly fine if that aluminum can goes back into an aluminum uh you know window or or something or you know aluminum screen door uh so i don't feel like it has to go back into a can
1: and that's what's so cool about sustainability it's the fact that you can take one product Break it down, recycle it, and then use it in, in something entirely different I, I had um, I, I had talked with again an artificial turf recycler um, and what they were doing was breaking down entire turf fields um, into the original components and then actually creating a a resin um, a, a resin out of that to put back into plastic manufacturing and it's weird because you know I, I grew up on a football field grew up on grew up on artificial turf and you're standing out there and you're like huh this can all be broken down into a plastic product. Let's say a kid's toy. Let, let, let's yeah. say a plastic, whatever it is. And it's just, it, it, it'll blow you away the more that you think about it. And to me, I feel like those in sustainability, like I said earlier, are the greatest problem solvers because you have to find new uses. You, you can't, you, you not always can just use the same method, use the same um, practice that you did last time. You've got to find new ways and find new solutions. So, I mean, it's it's really cool just to just to unpack that and to understand, you know, what where is this product going? Um, I had for my first episode, a guy by the name of Anwar Khan on here. And what he has created is a reverse vending machine business. So Mm I mean, and and his whole strategy is to place these reverse vending machines at professional sports venues. Um, And it's it's such a cool concept. They actually just had one at the Super Bowl i trying to think where the Super Bowl was in Arizona and Phoenix this last year. And, you know, listening to him talk and saying, you know, it's so cool because, you know, people can recycle a Heineken bottle or they can recycle a Coca-Cola bottle. And then our suppliers and the people that we're working with are breaking those materials down into all these other products. So it's cool just to just to look at the whole circle. And like you're saying, the circular economy of of sustainability. So,
0: Well, everything that your, that my eyes and your eyes see, that's man-made, has either a been under the ground or in the ground, or in a farm at one time or another. Literally everything. I don't care whether it's the drywall, or whether it's the wood that forms a trim, or whether it's you know the, the shirt that's on our on our backs. Everything is either a been on the ground, or on the land in some kind of farm. And and mankind has learned how to harvest trees. It's learned how to drill for oil. It's learned how to mine for minerals. And then it's learned how to organize these things that are just raw materials on the the planet Earth into, into something that we put in our offices or in our homes. So really, sustainability is just simply looking at it you know, in reverse, it's saying, "Okay, well now it got here to that building or to that dwelling. How do I then turn it back into something so I can keep using it Because the same ingenuity had to occur for somebody to figure out how to how to drill for oil you know centuries ago and eventually turn that into a plastic part you know so that took a great deal of ingenuity to get it into plastic part the first time. Now there's going to be ingenuity required to get it from that plastic part back into something else in the future.
1: So when you were at shaw industries i mean i just i find this super interesting um you 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 established uh, the 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 largest nationwide carpet recycling program and at my last position uh my boss was was a guy by the name of adam bolin i don't know if you know um who he is but great great guy and he, he would always talk about BHAG, um, big, hairy, audacious goals. You know, <laughs> what can we do? This might be a five-year plan. This might be a ten-year plan. But this is this is a big, hairy, audacious goal. Let's um, let's plan to do this. You know, we're shooting for the stars. It might not happen, but hey, we're going to try. Um, so obviously, I mean, if you're establishing the the nation's largest carpet recycling program, that is a, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that came to be um, and how how the idea for that came and and ultimately how you took the idea of that and then created this nationwide carpet recycling program.
0: Well, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously different layers and levels to to getting those goals And the first layer is, you know, business leaders, usually CEOs and presidents uh, you know, men and women who are buying companies and, and starting new technologies. You know, they, they, they largely will set a direction for just about any organization. And uh, and so they're the ones that come up and say, you know what, we're going to do this. So in the case of Shaw, uh, Shaw Industries and its leaders at the time decided we're going to buy a certain amount of technology from another company. And they did. And oh, by the way, when they bought that technology, they got this 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 retired plant called Evergreen. It, it Evergreen had uh, had operated for a little while and then shut down. And so they started the goal by saying, Hey, we're going to have this thing running within two years. Okay. Well then they start hiring people, myself being one of them and saying, guys, go figure it out. So uh, in in my case, it's pretty simple. It's a task of, Hey, you know, just get her done. And, and so when we knew that plant was going to be operated in, in uh, operating in about two years, we said, Oh my gosh, what are we going to feed it? You know, how's it going to, what's its raw material? and, you know, they don't sell post-consumer carpet on the shelves of Walmart, so you have to go out and find out how to get it. And, uh, basically I, I remember taking that job and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to travel a lot. And I did, uh, because, uh, I was probably traveling 75% of my time, uh, was at, in a in a city around the country, trying to start, start up recycling so that we had enough raw material to run the plant. So, I would say that in my case, it was largely out of necessity that I, at least that's the way I felt it at the time. When I look back, I I certainly am very proud of what we did as a collective team, but it, it started from the leadership saying, we're going to do this. And, and all successful endeavors, including sustainability is going to be a a leader saying we're going to do it.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's awesome. I
0: mean, you're, I'm guessing you, you probably hit almost every state in the U.S. <laughs> through your yeah, trip. I, there's there's just a small handful. Montana, I didn't do. I didn't do uh, Vermont. Uh didn't. Uh, sadly, I didn't do Hawaii. I always wanted to do Hawaii, but didn't do that. Uh, and didn't do Alaska. But other than that, just did about every other state.
1: I guess Hawaii and Alaska are, are different. They're they're kind of a different beast because. I mean, in Hawaii, if they don't have, you know, these, these recycling plants or, 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 processes and, and companies in the, in the actual state that can, you know, recycle, um, then you, you ultimately would just be flying materials from Hawaii to
0: the States. And that's just with carbon emissions, that's just, uh, might yeah, as well not. correct. I mean, Hawaii has to import everything except good weather and good sunshine and, uh, <laughs> and And so you're right. And as a result that that there is an inherent inefficiency, which is one reason why generally speaking that's considered a an expensive place to go. it's it obviously a, a destination and resort type community. But yeah, it's different. And the same thing's true with Alaska. Uh, but that is probably one of the most important things in sustainability to be efficient is logistics. Sustainability has to require good and efficient what I call reverse logistics. So you have to figure out ways to be as efficient coming back as you can. You'll never be as efficient as you can going out. And here's why is let's take uh, Ikea as a great example. Ikea, um, you know, you tend to buy your products in Ikea in a box and then you bring it home and you spend the next two or three or four or five hours assembling an Ikea piece of furniture. And by the time you finish assembling it, you ask yourself, why did I buy that piece of a furniture? But nonetheless, it was packaged very efficiently. The box had a certain size and dimension where well, you could put hundreds, if not thousands of those boxes on a truck and ship them to Ikea. Now, picture this, after you're done using that box and you're done, if you have to return it to Ikea, there's no way you and I or any normal human being can, can put it back in that box as efficiently as it came to us. And so we can't fit hundreds or thousands of boxes. We might only fit a few dozen boxes on that same truck to get back to Ikea. So my point is the return needs to be as efficient as possible, but it can never be as efficient as, as it is distributed uh, for the first time.
1: Another really cool project and, and um, initiative that you led, I mean, your career was with the J and J flooring group um, and you were able to achieve third um, party certification to zero waste to landfill. And, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you're involved in sustainability, um, you have a good idea of what zero waste to landfill means. But for our listeners, um, could you explain what that means? What does zero waste to landfill mean for a manufacturing company? Uh,
0: that, listen, that, that is something, uh, Preston, I, I would say I was very proud of helping facilitate. And zero waste to landfill is just that, zero waste to landfill. There was not a gram, not an ounce, not a pound of product that went to the landfill out of J&J's manufacturing operation. That means every pound or uh, of, of raw material that came in, if it wasn't efficiently used, it had a home uh, to be recycled to. That means even uh, break room and bathroom trash did not go to a landfill. Hmm. And uh, so it, it was a very, it's a, it's a relatively new concept. It was kind of, Pushing the envelope was the purpose of the project, was just to say, can we even do this? And to the credit of J&J, over the course of many decades, it was a very efficient company with waste to start with. So it was already fairly low. And I remember going to the leadership and asking them, hey, you know, can we take this last little bit? Can we go ahead and drive it to zero? And in our case, what that took is that took uh, the very small quantity, largely of break room and bathroom trash, just a little small stuff that, you know, but also, you know, broken hoses and broken belts and just stuff that we couldn't find a recycle home. We did, we did package that up and we sent that to an energy recovery facility in, in Huntsville, Alabama. It's called Covanta. They're the largest uh, energy recovery facility in, um, in the country. And they took that, uh, they took that, uh, that waste, and along with other waste from from other locations around the southeast, they made steam out of it that that uh, ultimately supplied the uh, the Redstone Armory, basically one of the uh, the U.S. military's army bases. Hmm. And um, so that's what they did is they, they produced steam out of it. So rather than be buried in the landfill forever, that bathroom and break room trash that I'm talking of at least got turned into energy before it it it, it finally went went to waste. Wow. That's,
1: that is, that is very, very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing when, when you had this goal of, okay, I mean, y'all are doing a very good job with waste at J&J and you come mm-hmm. in and you say, okay, there's still a very small part that, that you're wasting and sending to the landfill. Was, did, did you face hesitancy from people when you said, hey, let, let's find a new use for for the bathroom trash. Let's find a new use for, Maybe this waste that's in the corner that, that nobody cares about. Did you face hesitancy um, when you when you brought that to the table?
0: I, I did. I, let me give you some examples. Um, I tried at first to get rid of the the hand towels, the, the the basically, if you will, the paper towel waste in the bathrooms, you know, um and and I wanted to go to uh, basically the air dryers that you tend to have maybe in sports arenas or or rest areas along the, the road because there is a there is a litter element to it. But what we did is we tried the the, the hand dryers and we we actually tried the, the the newest fanciest best hand dryer we could and we tried it for about three months and I started getting tomatoes thrown at me and you know. Uh, people didn't like that at all. They wanted their paper towels in, in, in their bathroom. They wanted to, to wash their hands, wipe their hands off and throw that paper away in a waste basket and, and head on back to their workstation. And, and I basically made the decision, you know, well, shoot, we had, we had already removed their, their styrofoam cups, so to speak, uh, before I said, is this a, is this a hill worth dying on? And I said, no, it's not, you know, because we're all human beings. We need to, you uh, we know, we need to operate and, and I'm clearly getting input that says people like hand towels over air dryers. So we didn't get rid of the paper towels. We kept them. And then I said, okay, well, shoot, that didn't work. Let's try, uh, what if, can we compost the hand, uh, the paper towels? I didn't even know you could do that. I keep in mind, I'm a, um, I'm a, in the textile industry. I'm a chemical engineer. I don't. I don't worry about paper towels. They're just something you use from time to time. But I had been in a conference out west, and uh, the people there said, "No, no, we we compost our paper towels." I said, "Well, shoot, well, we can compost our paper towels." So I started trying to figure out how to compost it, and uh, then we started trying to work with a uh, a local school to to do some composting because we didn't have all. We had good. Uh, uh, I think, uh, and don't quote me on this, I'm not a compost expert, but I think we had the nitrogen elements needed in the paper towels, but we didn't have the carbon elements we needed in the food waste. So we needed to find a place that was heavy in food waste that we could combine our paper towels with. And uh, that's when we, we worked and tried to partner with a local school to see if we could do that. And the end game was uh, we, we learned some things, but I we ultimately couldn't couldn't fix it. And so we tried hair dryers, we tried composting, and we finally said, well, shoot, guys, we're trying, let's move forward. What, what else can we do? Well, we can at least squeeze the energy out of it. And that's what we did. So by the time I had tried those things, I, I did not get any pushback. They said, hey, that's a reasonable thing to try. Just move forward, Russ.
1: An idea that just hit me just, just out of the blue is, you know, in the bathroom setting, obviously, I, I'm, I'm probably in the same boat as most people, that I'd rather just take a paper towel and just... just you know, dry my hands off and then just throw it um, because it, it's faster. You don't have to sit up under a, um, a drying station. But but an idea could be, you know, separating the, the garbage or the trash cans or, or, or trash situation in the bathroom to where, you know, one side of the trash can is, is blocked off and it's actually just for paper towels. And the other side can be for whatever else you bring in the bathroom. Let's say it's food. Let's say it's a Band-Aid. Let's say it's, um, a hairpin, uh, uh, anything. So that I mean, that could be an idea too, because that would that would um, eliminate a lot of the sorting element of you know having this big mush of just trash and randomness. So I don't know if, if that's a thing or not, but that's that kind of just hit me. No, in the moment. no, that's
0: a that's a really good idea. We did very, basically the same thing, and ultimately, while we were doing the paper towel composting, we had basically clear or white uh trash bags if you will in the in the bathrooms to collect the kind of waste you've just earlier described and then we put green trash bags in there to collect just the paper towels hmm. and those green happen to be compostable bags as well so we could throw the bag and the paper towel in at the same time so yeah those are the kind of solutions that it's, it takes takes to do and and I at the end one of the reasons uh that it just it didn't succeed for us in that bathroom trial was people liked? They, they didn't want to grab the handle with their bare hands. They wanted that paper towel in their hands to pull it open. And and our experience is eighty to ninety percent of people like that. And again, we're designing for human efficiencies, and we got to remember we're dealing with humans. So uh, there 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 are going to be some inherent uses that we're just going to have to come up with solutions. And and but I I, I don't think we should. Uh, I don't think we should deprive people of things in the process of moving towards more efficiency because all that will do is it'll cause them not to get on board. But if you instead figure out ways to work with them, it's going to help. It's going to help move forward more quickly because you'll have a small army of people who are behind you as opposed to resisting your efforts to to become more efficient.
1: In in terms of sustainability and, and specifically recycling, to get more people on the boat rowing together, it's all about convenience. You know, if, if you're making something less convenient for someone, we're human beings, you know, a lot, a lot of us are not going to do it. So um, making it more convenient, like you're saying, I mean, that's what you, that's what you, you did at J and J. I mean, you obviously audited the whole process and audited um, um, this whole bathroom situation. But at the end of the day, it's, you have to go back to what
0: the humans want and you kept it convenient for them. Yeah, I did. it, 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 it An example, uh, Walt Disney World, many years ago, tried to figure out how many uh, trash receptacles did it need to put out. And so it did a study. It it, it placed them at different distances between, you know, at at 25 feet apart, 50 feet apart, 100 feet apart, 200 feet apart. And what they were trying to do is figure out where does the average human uh, say in their mind, hey, I'm not going to walk any further. I'm just going to throw my cup or my napkin down on the ground. And so they can measure it based on litter. And so they came up with a a most efficient distance uh, between trash cans. Hmm. And so they were designing, if you will, their parks for efficiency in in the human interaction. And I think that's just an important thing to do. I I applaud. That's a good example of something I applaud them to do. It didn't have anything to do with, in their case, sustainability, but it did have a lot to do with cleanliness and, and litter and, and, and I would make a strong case that uh, you, you can't become sustainable if you can't first uh, jump the hurdle of willingness to avoid litter. You know, litter is almost like if, 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 you're, if you're littering, then you're not going to be behind sustainability. And so uh, it, it's kind of, if you will, just the foundational element to, to human behavior.
1: On this show, we use the term upcycling a lot, and um, basically, upcycling taking taking a piece of waste or or something that's waste and turning it into a new product. Um, and looking at your experience, you were very involved in materials um, reclamation. Yeah. And um, to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that like upcycling and materials reclamation is is similar. Um, and could you talk a little bit on what materials rec- reclamation is and, and kind of what you did at, let's say, Shaw Industries in, in that type of sustainability?
0: Sure, sure. And it, there's a couple of different terms in there, upcycling and reclamation. So let's talk about reclamation. Reclamation is simply reclaiming something that was w- there. So reclamation of, of old used carpet, of that post-consumer carpet. And it's figuring out how in the world do you collect it? And I, I mentioned to you and your audience earlier on, on how to do that. So uh, so that's the reclamation side. And, and tied into reclamation is also that reverse logistic element that I described earlier as well, too. So it's you've got to get it back to some place you can use it. So now now you've got it back to a place you can process it. And then you got to figure out, okay, what do I do with it? And the upcycling is certainly a term. I recognize there's some... Um, There's just some feel good nature to, oh, my gosh, I'm taking something that was once a newspaper and now I'm going to make something more important than a newspaper. Uh, I generally don't really get caught up into that, Preston. I say anything you can do with that newspaper uh, to keep it out of a landfill is better than not doing something at all. So I'm I'm inclined to say do as best as you can. Generally speaking, upcycling, uh, uh, if you will, cost more. And I would say upcycling is largely used out there in the industry to compare it against the, quote, downcycling. And there's this idea that uh, up is good and down is bad. And I just, uh, I guess I just don't got, get caught up in that. I And I, I almost never use the word downcycling. I think it, uh, it puts a, a negative, uh, I, I think it's good. Somebody's figuring out something to do with it. I don't care if you turn plastic into a, into a potted, uh, you know, and into a plant, a pot for a plant, or whether you turn it into a park bench, uh, or whether you turn it back into carpet, it doesn't really matter. Turn it back into something, mm-hmm. and and uh, so I'm not I'm not terribly concerned about downcycling and upcycling. What I am concerned is that we continually get more efficient every year. Now that that I am interested in, and that's and in general, if we get more efficient every year, guess what? Eventually, we will get more and more upcycling occurring.
1: So Russ, the, the last segment I, I, I want to hit on, on our show today is it's all about the projects that you were involved with and led in these different companies with Dow Chemical, with Shaw Industries, with J&J Flooring Group, um, with Engineered Floors. And then now with what you're doing in consulting with, with your own firm, the uh, Regenerate Environmental and Sustainability um, Consulting or Sustainable Consulting. So um, I, I would just love to hear and, and also share with our audience the projects that, that you that you did in these different organizations. And I know that this might be a long, a very long uh, <laughs> answer because there's a variety of industries. But again, I, I just think it's so valuable to hear these projects that you did for these companies.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I of. One I did with Dow, as, as I mentioned to you and your audience earlier, you know, I started out as a chemical engineer. That's my background, my training, and, and much of my experience. And I, I generally like efficiencies in chemical engineering. When I, I was a, I was the high school nerd. I was the guy that built the rockets and the balloons and in, in the and in the explosives that did all kinds of things. So I was that that guy that tinkered. I had the privilege of. Uh, growing up just about a half mile away from Thomas Edison's uh, winter home. Oh, and wow. so I had the privilege of, and you talk about a tinkerer, you know, so he would have been a, a, a early kind of icon that I looked to. Now, obviously he had a long, long sense uh, passed on, but he left a, a tremendous legacy for all of mankind. And um, so it was that tinkering that got me. But the the thing I did at Dow when I, I showed up and I was the startup leader for a polypropylene plant. And so I showed up my first day and I looked out and I saw nothing but dirt as far as the eye can see. And the goal was, Hey, you know, in two years, we need this, this dirt pile, you know, running and operating and making product. And so, you know, after, I remember after working 110 hour weeks and stuff like that, just, you know, working and working and working uh, as a collective team, uh, we had that plant up and running uh, making product within less than 24 hours when we push the button. So it was a very successful startup. So that that would be one of my highlights in my career. It's always fun to to do something worth worth doing, and I felt like that was something worth doing. But I got to tell you, I do did enjoy. You touched on it earlier, Preston, about the you know starting up the uh, the re- reclamation activities for Shaw. That even though it was tiresome to do all that travel and going all those places I, I can still look back and and, and realize that, that overall it was a collective good thing to do. Um now having said that, let me let me tell you and your audience. We we worked very hard for years on that process. We we I my team was able to uh uh collect carpet at a at a at a rate that was 30% more efficient than the previous owners had done 3 years before. So it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like it. we cut you know, 100% of the cost out. But we caught, cut 30% of the cost out of our collections. We're very efficient. And, and even the plant was efficient. Yet after running it for five or six years, they had to shut it down because it could not compete against virgin raw materials. It, it couldn't even come close, uh, uh, Preston. So
1: that was with Dow and that was with Shaw transitioning with, I mean, I, I'm guessing with J&J. You're most proud of of hitting that zero zero waste to landfill,
0: correct? Yeah, I think I think so. It's always fun to to do something that's that's a challenge and, and not been done before. Yes, All right. And then and then with engineered floors,
1: so engineered floors purchased J um, and J, and that 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 puts you as an employee of Engineered Floors. What were some of the things that you were able to to accomplish at um, Engineered Floors after this purchase happened?
0: Well, that's a good question. It, there was a, obviously a, a good amount of uh, influx of, uh, of, of, of assets. You know, engineered floors was able to basically make things more efficient by simply making things with more modern equipment and bigger. Uh, in, in fairness, a lot of times you can be just more efficient by j- just having the, the, the economies of scale. And that's what engineered floors offered. So largely, I did that. Also, just generally introduced the idea of sustainability to a younger company. The younger company was was largely focused almost exclusively on growth and growth and growth. And so sometimes when you're that way, you, you kind of lose track of some of the other items. And so I, I think I was able to share with them, hey, guys, focus on water or focus on energy. And and I was able to do that to some degree. Um, and, and and lastly,
1: the work that you're doing now. I mean, you started your own consulting firm. Who are you working with? Who are your clients? Um, what what's the work you're doing? What what projects have you accomplished? I'm I'm very interested to hear um, how you've taken again this this breadth of knowledge and experience and are using it into your own consulting firm.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's it's certainly been a privilege, I sometimes uh, have to pinch myself and say, wait, I have enough experience to be a consultant. And, and I guess I, I've come to realize that in some area, in a very targeted area, yes, you know, that the truth is the world's made up of a lot of super smart people. And most of those smart people are in very specific areas. So if you think about a, a doctor, if you, you have heart problems, you don't want to go to a, uh, uh, you know, uh, internalist, you want to go to a heart specialist. And so, and we're thankful that we have specialists. Well, I, I kind of am a specialist in sustainability and things environmental because that's what I've worked on for the last 20 years. And so I would say, frankly, the whole thing is has been a joy to be uh, a part of. I, I've enjoyed consulting with completely different industries from the flooring industry. I've I've enjoyed consulting with completely different industries than the soft floor covering industry. I've, I've come up with... Uh, several different test methods. I've worked with a company uh, or c- multiple companies to come up with ID technology. And j- those things are, you name it, it's its just been enjoyable to do a bunch of different things and, and just help people move forward.
1: One other thing that I was, I, I've forgotten to say when we we're talking about engineered floors was um, last week I had Brandy Townsend on and um, I, I talked to her for about an hour, probably before the the episode, even before we even started and um, I was just briefing her on my strategy for the podcast, briefing her on who I've had on in the past, who, who's planned to come on. And when I came to you and I was explaining, um, you know, Russ DeLosier, he's coming on, he, he's done this, this, this. It was like she lit up and it was like immediately everyone else, uh, you know, she was about the same, but when she heard your name, she lit up. Oh my gosh, I know Russ. I did work with Russ in the past. Um, and, and she was telling me about um, a project that um, engineered floors had funded um, for, for Dalton Public Schools, and that you were kind of spearheading this project to bring a dehydrator and composter um, into, I guess, the cafeteria at one of these schools. Um, and I just thought it was really cool because it was, again, we, we talk about small world moments, but in that moment, it really was because back-to-back episodes, people that have worked together, and I had no idea. Um, so I guess the, the question, I, I say all that, the question I would ask you is, What was that project that you did with with Dalton Public Schools? And why do you think it's important for, you know, kids growing up to to learn about things like composting and and things like, you know, dehydrating your food down and even with recycling?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you recall, we were talking earlier about that bathroom project and the the paper towels. That was the project that we worked uh, with the Dalton Public Schools on because we we didn't have the necessary food waste because we didn't have we only had a lunchroom we didn't have a cafeteria well who has the biggest who feeds the most people you know in, in the county of any any community it's always going to be the schools you know they they you know more more food goes through cafeterias in the schools than probably any other place in, in a community and so what I, I remember going to to them and saying hey uh, do you have, are you interested in composting? And it just so happened they had a few people very interested in composting. And so I said, can we figure out a way to make this work together? And th- they were more than willing to do it. In fact, had come, came up with really good ideas. We tried the dehydrator and, and I would tell you that it worked okay. We could never get it to work exactly like we wanted it to, but I, I wouldn't trade trying it, uh, you know, for anything because we should be trying things. Uh, And so, but it was what the most important thing I remember learning from that is how important it is. The carpet industry is not going to be able to do what it needs to do by itself. It's got to network with others. It's got to network with the health community. It's got to network with the school community. It's got to network with the, you know, the the raw material suppliers. And I would say any of your listeners, uh, the successful sustainability listeners, are going to be good at networking with people. And, and as you network with people, you'll learn from other people and you'll, you'll get a sense of, the, of where things are going. And, it's, and then the other thing is just be willing to try something, you know, be honest with your leadership and say, guys, this is a trial. I think it'll work. Uh, you know, have have your facts down enough because you certainly want to uh, you want to bat above the Mendoza line. You know when it comes to uh, your recycle, you don't want to you don't want to try something and everything you try is not successful. But at the same time, if you're honest with your leadership and you go out there and give it the the good college try, uh, they'll be willing to give you uh, give you a little bit of rope to to do it. And that's uh, engineered floors did that. J&J did that. Shaw did that. Dow did that. It's, uh, you know, find yourself a company that's willing to take a little bit of risk.
1: So, Russ, the the final three questions I ask everyone that comes on the podcast are um, or the first one is um, why? Why is sustainability important?
0: Uh, because of our grandkids or our great grandkids, we're, we're not we're we don't own this world. We're simply borrowing it from them. And uh, if we can't honestly look ourselves in the mirror and say we're leaving it in better shape than when we got it, then we've not done our job. Uh, so why is it important? Because our grandkids are great grandkids. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone. I don't know if
1: I touched on this last episode, but everyone I asked that question to always comes to a similar conclusion um, of it's important because the future generation is needs a world to live in. And we have to sustain the materials that we have so that they can live the way that we live. Um, So next question is, um, what can we do? You know, average people, um, what can we do every day to to better the environment?
0: You know that's a that's an important question, and I, I think the everyday part is the most important. I think the most important thing we can do, Preston, is just realize that we should become more efficient. And if so, for instance, uh, take your car. If if there's any way I can do whatever I need to do with my car more efficiently, I should do that. I should always be asking myself. And the cool news is is that if you're more efficient, you're going to also put money in your pocket, and and. And that's the that's the win for for companies. But so, for instance, if if people put a smart thermostat on their house and their house becomes more efficient, guess what? They can put 20 or 30 or 40 dollars in their pocket every single month because their power bill is going to be less. Um, they ought to consider, you know, a, you know, a thermostat, those type of things. So what they should ask themselves every day is, can I be more efficient in what I'm doing? Can I use less water when I? do my laundry? Can I use less water when I, when I take a shower? Then those, those type of things. So ask themselves to be more efficient every day. And,
1: and lastly is, why should people pursue a career in sustainability?
0: Well, that I'm assuming that your audience is going to be interested in sustainability. So the people who are listening to you are, are looking to pursue. Uh, I would tell you this, not everybody that hears the term sustainability should be pursuing it. Because it, it really is a, it should be a passion kind of of the heart. And, and I, I haven't told your audience this, but growing up in Florida, um, I would walk to the beaches out there and there would be some signs that say, you know, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. So even as a young kid, I had just instilled insta- in my mindset this idea of just be more, you know, be more, be a better steward of the world that we're in. And 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 in fairness, I do believe the population, there are many people who are wired that way. There are others that aren't as wired. So if you don't happen to be wired that way, you know, go on and do other things successfully. Don't 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 forget about being efficient in what you're doing. But for those who have a passion for sustainability, the reason why they should pursue it is because it's just going to flow out of their heart to work. And there's been many a days, yes, I've worked hard and I felt like it's work. And there's been plenty of days though that I've worked really hard and it's never felt like work because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's it's funny. You bring
1: up that quote in Florida, leave only footprints. I I had read a book um, in the past. I think the author was, his name is Connor Knighton, I think, but the book is called leave only footprints and it was his journey of hitting every national park in the U S Okay. Um, and leave only footprints, meaning leave only footprints, don't leave trash behind. Yes. Do not trash the national parks, you know, visit, enjoy. Um, but, you know, leave only footprints, you know, take your pictures, don't leave anything behind. So, so again, it, it's really cool to, to kind of tie those two things together. It, it is
0: like, like we said earlier, you know, if you can't get, if you can't eliminate litter from your life, you're going to have trouble working towards sustainability. It You should want to have. The place, the the park you go to, the business you're in, uh, wherever you should, uh, it it should look cleaner and neater uh, when you leave it than when you showed up. Well,
1: Russ, um, that's about all I have today. Yeah. I mean, I, I greatly appreciate again you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge, your experience, and your expertise in sustainability. And I feel. I just feel that our listeners will gain so much from from this episode.
0: Oh, well, good. I certainly uh, wish you well, and I wish your listeners well. I'm excited with what you're doing. It's certainly worth talking about. Thank you.